the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk a little bit about the COVID-19 pandemic, and then we're going to be joined for two segments by Dr. Scott McKnight, author of a new book called A Church Called Tove. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today. Those of you who haven't been around, you know, uh, Ian Simpkins, my former co-host, has been done here for about a, a week, a week plus, and we've been having guest co-hosts. But today, no guest co-hosts. You just get me for the entire two hours. But we have two great guests coming on uh, during the course of the show. In the four o'clock hour, we're going to be joined for two segments by Dr. Scott McKnight. He is uh, the uh, he's a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary, author of countless phenomenal books, including a new one that he wrote with his daughter entitled A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. This book is kind of going everywhere right now. I see it every day uh, on my social media. And so we are super excited to talk uh, to Scott McKnight. And then later in the show, in the second hour, we're going to talk to Jen Pollock-Michelle, uh, author of A Habit Called Faith, 40 Days in the Bible to Find and follow Jesus. So we've got those ahead of us. Hopefully uh, you're going to enjoy the show as we kind of bounce things all around today as it starts to warm up out there a little bit. Not so cold, uh, no longer in the single digits or in the negatives. Uh, still lots of snow out there. We'll see what happens as it all starts to melt. But we hope you had a great weekend. Uh, my weekend was a fun one because for the first time, uh, I think since the coronavirus pandemic began, uh, my family was able to go see a movie in an actual movie theater. My, uh, it was my nephew's 16th birthday. And so my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, they rented out a movie theater down in Chicago. And uh, it was just our families. Uh, my, my cousin, my, my brother-in-law, sister-in-law, our nieces and nephews. Uh, and we got to sit and watch a movie in an actual theater and then go to an actual restaurant. And I can't tell you how good it was to sit in a movie theater, to sit in those big comfy chairs and just relax and watch a movie. Uh, it felt so normal again. Uh, and it really was a lot of fun and hopefully a harbinger of things to come as things uh, again, hopefully begin to get more and more normal. And I do want to start the, the, the show today talking about the coronavirus pandemic because it has been a while uh, since we've talked about it. We are now going on a year. Like I, I just have a hard time fathoming that, that it will be in the first or second week of March where we will have been a year in which things have been shut down. And I know not everything's shut down right now and everything's, you know, depending on where you're at right now, uh, kind of determines how things are going. But it's been basically a year th since things have not been normal. Schools, churches, businesses, uh, entertainment, everything. And, and you think back a year ago and, and how incomprehensible it would have been uh, how this year would have gone, uh, how this year of 2020 into 2021 was going to go. Uh, and then 
with that in mind, we hit a grim milestone. Uh, and milestone feels like the wrong word for this, but a grim milestone over the course of this weekend. Uh, reading from NBC News, uh, U.S. reaches 500,000 deaths from the coronavirus. The number of dead rivals the populations of Atlanta or Sacramento, California. And, and that number is is just can you imagine us have reading that read that headline a year ago? And it says that the coronavirus in the U.S. has uh, the death toll has topped 500,000 as of Sunday. Uh, a milestone NBC News writes that underscores the grave threat the virus still poses, even as more people are vaccinated. But the number uh, worldwide is approaching 2.5 million people, according to Johns Hopkins University. More than a fifth of all deaths worldwide uh, that have occurred in the U.S. Uh, and so, again, I do want to I don't we're getting so used to the concept of people dying from the coronavirus, from the COVID-19 pandemic, that, that I don't want to just blow past this. But but we do need to just kind of pause and go, man, this has been a big deal. This has been really hard. And um, yeah, and just kind of sit in that and lament and uh, and, and feel that. But, but with that said, things are starting to turn around right now. And I do want to read from you to you, uh, read from a Wall Street Journal article from over the weekend uh, that, to be honest with you guys, I felt when I read it very hopeful. Uh, it's written by Marty uh, McCary, an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal. And he wrote this. We'll have herd immunity by April. COVID uh, cases have dropped 77 percent in six weeks. Experts should level with the public about the good news. This isn't just some random person. Dr. McCary is a professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and Bloomberg School of Public Health, a chief medical advisor to Sesame Care and the author of The Price We Pay. And let me just get into this article a little bit. He says, amid the dire COVID warnings, one crucial fact that has been largely ignored, cases are down 77% over 60, uh, six weeks. If medication slashed cases by 77%, we'd call it a miracle pill. Why is the number of cases plummeting much faster than experts predicted? In large part because natural immunity from prior infection, this article writes, is far more than more common than can be measured by testing. And he goes on to give statistics. uh, But he says, now add people getting vaccinated. As of this week, 15 percent of Americans have received the vaccine and the figure is rising fast. Uh, Former Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Scott Gottlieb estimates 250 million doses will have been delivered to some 150 million people by the end of March. So the article goes on to say there is reason to think that the country is racing towards an extremely low level of infection. As more people have been infected, most of whom have mild or no symptoms, there are fewer Americans left to be infected. At the current trajectory, the author says, I expect COVID will be mostly gone by April allowing Americans to resume normal life. And there's so much more to this article. We'll put it up uh, at our Facebook page. Uh, but the, he's seeming, he, this guy is seeming to say that, that we're starting to see the effects of uh, whether it be herd immunity, vaccinations, uh, and, and that the numbers are plummeting. I saw over the week, uh, over the weekend, numbers are down in all 50 states right now. And, and here's one thing I want to just point out. Like, 
I think we need to look at things like, hey, there's been 500,000 deaths and feel the weight of that and take COVID really seriously, knowing that it is still present, while at the same time reading articles like this and going, let's celebrate this and let's let make sure people know this so that there's a light at the end of the tunnel so people feel uh, like like there's hope. Uh, and And one thing that frustrates me is depending on the media outlet that you choose, they either want to deny that COVID is a big deal. It is a big deal. 500,000 people have died. People continue to be sick or media outlets don't want to report that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. They want us to keep cowering in fear and living in fear, you know, and, and then you get reports that say, yeah, we, we might be in masks through 2022 or this and that. And, and people get really down and you understand why people don't know what to trust. And, and, and Kind of what I want to say is let's have both. Let's have both. Let's say, you know what? It's been really hard. It continues to be really hard. There's a lot of people who have been affected by this. This has changed our culture forever. What we've gone through this year, but it's not always going to be this way. And look, there's even a light at the end of the tunnel. Look at what this guy says here at the Wall Street Journal, a guy who would know what he's talking about. Not everything has to be doom and gloom. Guys, we can have it both ways. We can take it seriously. And look to a day where it's no longer be like this and look to that day, hopefully soon. So keep up with what you're doing. Keep listening and and doing, you know, taking your safety measures and all of this, but also be reminded that there's coming a day. And this guy says coming a day, maybe sooner than what we think uh, when life may begin to feel more normal. Numbers are down across all 50 states right now. And we can celebrate that while lamenting, while um, remembering that 500,000 people to this date have died. And therefore we have to take this still really seriously. Wanted to start there because uh, that's something that affects all of us right now. Schools, churches, businesses across the board. Well, we're glad that you're with us today on this Monday. We're going to be joined for the next two segments by Dr. Scott McKnight. Dr. Scott McKnight is a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary, world-renowned speaker, writer, professor, equipper of the church, and also the author of a new book that we're going to focus in on called A Church Called Tove forming a goodness culture that resists abuses of power and promotes healing. Scott McKnight's going to join us for the next two segments here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today, excited to be with you on this Monday afternoon. And I couldn't be more thrilled to be joined for the next two segments uh, by Dr. Scott McKnight. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. Brian, good to be with you. Good to be back. And uh, it's a good time. Yes, absolutely. It's our pleasure having you back. Uh, can you, uh, before we jump into the, just this book that I'm seeing so much about right now that, uh, that you and your daughter co-authored, could you just introduce yourself so our audience gets to know you a little bit? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary, Northern Baptist Theological Seminary in Lyle, Illinois. Those who drive 88 will see it right across from the Morton Arboretum. <laughs> and um, I'm um, ordained, and I am a teacher and an author and a husband and a father and a grandfather. 
Oh, awesome. Awesome. Well, Scott, uh, speak of being an author, you uh, and your daughter have co-authored a book that I was telling you off the air. There's not a day that goes by where I'm on Twitter where I don't see somebody talking about your book. It's this new book out called A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. And such an important book, uh, especially with all that we're going through. And that's where I kind of want to start, because the point of the book is to is to make a pathway forward from the many scandals of abuse that we've been seeing over the past couple of years in the church. But before looking forward, I want, I want to talk about just where we are right now. And how would you think about or How would you answer this? Is the problem of abuse in the church something that is getting worse? Like it feels like it's getting worse or, or do we just know about it? Are we just hearing about it more now? Well, I'm, I'm sure we do not have statistics, and I'm a professor, so I'm, I would be interested in that. I, I would say um, that we definitely know about it more. Yeah. And I think that there is so much dysfunction in society that it is almost certainly happening more. Yeah. Um, I just, uh, I think the 60s and 70s unleashed some uh, power abuses and some sexual abuses that um, have continued to grow in the churches, uh, sadly. Yeah. Yeah. And you, as you said, you talk about much of the book talks about the abuses within the church. Could you define for me specifically the term spiritual abuse? There might be some people out there going, I don't get what that means. How would you describe spiritual abuse? Well, spiritual abuse, uh, let's just say that uh, physical abuse is when I use my strength physically against your body. Sexual abuse is when someone uses their sexual powers against mm -hmm. someone uh, weaker than they are. Spiritual abuse is coercion, force, the abuse of another person using spiritual authority. Mm -hmm. And we have to recognize that pastors people who speak the Word of God, who teach the Word of God, who are leaders in churches, who represent power structures in churches, can use their power over a person, overpowering them in ways that are ungodly, unloving, uncharitable. And that's, that's what happens with spiritual abuse, is that people use their, let's say, legitimate leadership position and power in a church to overpower another person, make them feel guilty. And it, it is so often the case that people who are abused take it so deeply because they consider that person um, a representative of God in their life. Mm -hmm. They trusted them. And so spiritual abuse works that way, and there's way too much of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure as you write a book like this, I'm sure you're hearing all sorts of stories that must be uh, incredibly difficult to hear. Now, the book is centered, as we said in the title, uh, around a very specific word that many people probably have never heard of, or if they have heard of it, they don't really know it. That word being Tov, T-O-V. Could you talk to us about what is that word and why did you guys choose to center this book around that word? Okay, the... Uh... They probably have heard someone say Mazel Tov if they're that's in the right. Chicagoland area, because that's a typical Jewish uh, blessing or greeting. Yeah. Tov is the Hebrew word for goodness. And I was writing a blog post about um, a well-known church where there was some abuse. And I said, what, what churches need is goodness. Mm. And uh, Brian, the number of people who resonated with that, who wrote me, 
pastors, leaders, students, just ordinary people in churches. I said, oh, I wish we talked more about goodness. And I just kept thinking we need more goodness. So I spent some time studying goodness and uh, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, which occurs over 200 times and can be called a master moral category in the Mm -hmm. Old Testament. God calls us to be tov and to run from ra, the Hebrew word for evil. So good and evil, the garden, the tree of good and evil, that we are to practice good and not be evil. So tov is that word. And it. Um, what I found is I started using it in my classes as I was teaching about this, and I realized it was very catchy. It was fresh <laughs> yes. because it's not a term people use. Uh, they didn't have the baggage of the Reformation that there is none good, no, not one, which was a verse emphasized in the Reformation and um, among many evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't have any of that baggage. It just seemed like a good word. It caught on. And I found my students saying, is that Tove? That's Tove. I like <laughs> Tove. Let's use the word Tove. And I, I have to say, we had to convince the publisher to use a Hebrew word in the title. And now, um, as you're right, Brian, we see on the Internet, especially on Twitter, so many people using this word Tove, and they just call the book Tove. So, oh, that's that's great. I, yeah. Every day, every day I see something on Twitter. Uh, Scott, what would a church look like uh, that, for to use your imagery, that has Tove or that, that is doing well at this? Help people understand what that sort of church would look like. You know, this was this was the quest of our book. Mm-hmm. Uh, we weren't, Laura and I, my daughter, we're not trying to expose Willow Creek or Harvest or other churches. I mean, the stories we tell are stories that were public. These aren't anything new. Um, uh, what we wanted to do was create a paradigm of attributes and characteristics in what we call the circle of Tove. Mm. What are the habits? Of goodness, what are the characteristics of goodness? And part of this was shaped by the raw or the bad things that we were seeing in churches. So we developed seven characteristics of Tove, and um, that's the that's the focus of the entire book is to expound Tove um, as characteristics of goodness in a church. Oh, that's that's good. And hopefully that will cause people to go out and grab the book. They're probably going, what are the seven? But we don't want to give yeah. everything away here. So I mean, go I, grab I'm the book. happy to give them, but uh, I know we're coming up for a break. Do I, that's am I right. supposed to say that? <laughs> yeah, we'll save that for the next segment. Let me ask you, we have like yeah. less than a minute left in this segment. What's it like to write a, a book with your daughter? You and I, I told you off air, I went to college with your daughter. And so it's kind yeah. of fun to see that she wrote this with her dad. What What is it like to write a book with your daughter? Well, uh, this is an interesting part of it, Brian. I would never have written this book, but Laura was, a, was a, I'd say often, she was a pest about it. She kept saying, <laughs> and everybody's asking about these things, and there's nothing out there. You need to put this in print. So I wrote a blog post, and then another one. The next thing I know, we had some ideas, and then we eventually proposed to Tyndale a book idea, and they accepted it. And uh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Everything I wrote, she revised. Everything she wrote, I revised. I'll let her tell you someday 
who edited the other the hardest? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I can guess. <laughs> well, we are thrilled to be joined by the Professor Dr. Scott McKnight, Professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. Uh, also author of many books, including the book we're talking about today called A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. And Scott, again, thank you so much for your time. You talked about that that one of the purposes of the book was to talk about seven characteristics or seven habits of goodness or of Tove. Uh, could you kind of unpack as best you can with the time that we have those seven characteristics? Yeah, Um the uh, the big picture is um, tov is goodness that uh, we want to have churches that are tov. David Brooks once said, "Never underestimate the power of the environment you work in to gradually transform who you are. Mm-hmm. When you choose to work at a certain company, you are turning yourself into the sort of person who works in that company." And so we we believe that it's important to recognize that a church is a culture. And if it's a mixed up culture, if it's a power culture, if it's a wealthy culture, it will shape things. And what we think the New Testament teaches, especially in the context of America, with so much abuse going on in churches, is a Tove culture. Mm. And so we broke it down into seven characteristics in a Tove culture, in a church that resist Ra or resist evil in a church. And they nurture empathy. A good church, a Tove church, emphasizes empathy and compassion for other people. And therefore, it resists the narcissistic uh, tendency to have no empathy and mm. to just uh, pursue grandiosity. A second characteristic is that a Tove church, a Tove culture, nurtures grace. It knows that God loves us, that God is working in us, that God is in a process of transforming us, that we are going to make mistakes, that we need to be forgiven. And it develops that sort of forgiveness culture in a church, that people um, are not living in fear. And so it resists a fear culture. A power culture where if you make one mistake, people jump all over you. In a grace culture, people help you grow. Mm. So they see mistakes as opportunities for growth. Uh, And I've I've talked to so many singers who can be scared to death by pastors that if they wear the wrong thing or hit the wrong note, that they're going to be fired. And that's just not a Tove culture. Mm -hmm. A third characteristic this is so important, Brian, is a Tove culture puts people first. It resists institution creep is the expression I use, where the institution is so important, we don't care about individuals. Yeah. A true Tove culture in a church knows people's names and it knows people's stories so that people can't, they just can't get rid of people because they're now a part of their family. I mean, there aren't very many families that kick people out of their family. That's right. Um, so we, we put up with people in our family. And that's what churches are supposed to be, because they put people first. A fourth characteristic, this is the one that really came home with some of these churches, is that a, a Tove church tells the truth. Mm. It resists false narratives. 
it knows that Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is there because people need to confess their sins. A Tov culture is not afraid of confession. Mm. It is not afraid of saying, I didn't do the right thing. But we have so many churches that emphasize the gospel is for people who need forgiveness. But once they ask for forgiveness, it's all over. And no more <laughs> sins will be permitted. And that's yes. unfortunate. Yeah, That's not uh, the true church. A church will tell the truth and say, I've, I've sinned. I've done something wrong. I need forgiveness. A fifth characteristic is that it nurtures justice. And this, this becomes political for some people. That's not what we mean. Justice is doing the right thing when you're called and challenged to do the right thing. Many times churches develop loyalty cultures. A Tove church resists loyalty to the institution, to the people who are in power, and does what is right. So when someone comes forward with an allegation, people listen and say, we have to do what's right. We tell stories. I should say Laura found some great stories about this. Mm. And then a sixth characteristic is that a Tove church nurtures service. And that is we are here to help others rather than developing a celebrity culture where everybody bows before the pastor, the preacher, the musicians, the leaders, you know, the inside circle. That's not the focus. It's that we are here to serve others. So it, it nurtures a service culture. And finally, this to me is the big one, is that it, it nurtures Christ-likeness. This summarizes everything. We want to be like Jesus. And a Tove culture makes people feel like when they've been to church, been in the assembly with other people of Jesus, that they've been with Jesus. Yeah. Instead of uh, developing a leader culture where it seems like the pastor is the superstar, this develops a Jesus culture yeah. so that we gather together because we are united in Jesus Christ. So that's the fastest uh, <laughs> circle yeah. of Tove I've ever been through. So there you go. And I that is just that is just the tip of the iceberg. I can't encourage people yeah. enough to go get the book. Scott, the best interviews are the ones where I'm left with so many questions and I just want to continue these. But let me ask you this one that popped into my mind. You're at a seminary. You you spend a lot of time training and teaching. Uh, I don't remember talking a lot about culture you know, getting trained in school and this, that. Is this increasingly something that you find seminaries talking about, trying to train young pastors in, or is this a big step of growth that we need to see happen? You know, Brian, this is something that I'm talking about in my classes. I don't think our seminary has made any, we haven't made any kind of official commitment that we need to talk about church culture. But we, uh, my colleagues, uh, David Fitch and... Mm -hmm. um, Lynn Coick and Ingrid Farrow and others, Bob Price, uh, Nijay Gupta. We talk about culture with one another, church cultures. I bring it up. They, they confirm it and they talk about it and they adjust things. But um, I really believe we need um, cultural discernment. Mm-hmm. Uh, my friend Daryl Bach wrote a book on cultural uh, engagement. We need to perceive culture in our churches today. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we, we need the eyes of the Spirit. The book of Revelation says the seven spirits. We need the eyes of the seven spirits um, looking around to see what our culture is and to see if it's Christ-like, see yeah. if it's Tove. 
Yeah. If it's not, we need to start working on that. And it takes time. Absolutely. Scott, I got one more question for you. And uh, I wish I had a ton of time for you to unpack this. And I think I know the answer because you wrote a book uh, looking forward. But I, I, I do want to just end by asking, are you hopeful for the church? Are you hopeful for uh, what you see in the future uh, of the church right now? You know, I think the young generation, I often call them skinny jeans people. The young, <laughs> the, the young generation, although I heard baggy pants are coming in again. That would um, be good for me. <laughs> um, I think the young generation can't stand superficiality. Mm. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. But these sorts of things, Tov does not happen because we won it or because we did a series of sermons. It takes years of habits, mm. of practicing the habits of goodness, of Tov, for a Tov culture to form. I've been in churches like this. Yeah, and yeah. you can really feel it and smell it. And I've been in churches that are marked by toxicity, and you can smell that too. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think we have to commit to it and uh, admit that we're never going to be perfectly tove. Sure. But we can be a lot tover than we are right now. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's Dr. Scott McKnight, professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary, uh, also the author of a new book, along with his daughter, Laura Berenger, uh, called The Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture That Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. You can find Scott's writings and other stuff at the Jesus Creed blog, the Jesus Creed, and also follow him on Twitter at Scott McKnight. That's at Scott McKnight. You can find the book wherever it is. You get your book. Scott, this was so fun for me. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thanks for inviting me, Brian. Good to be with you and hear your voice again. Absolutely. Well, we're glad that you joined us today. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thrilled that you are joining us on this Monday afternoon. Hope you're having a good Monday. It's a little bit warmer out there finally today. Uh, it's certainly not warm, uh, but a little bit warmer, and the snow will hopefully begin to melt. I'm doing this show from my house, and I'm looking out over our neighborhood, and the piles of snow still amaze me. Like, they are just uh, larger than anything I've ever seen, but hopefully they'll start melting away here. Things will start uh, getting a little bit, uh, maybe the green grass we'll see in a month or so, so... Who knows? But uh, as we get in February and start to move towards March, looking forward to spring. Spring training has started. I'm a big New York Mets fan. But for those of you who are Chicago fans, uh, spring training has begun. So it always begins to feel like there is hope at the end of the tunnel. My family, in fact, just bought tickets to go to Arizona in the Grand Canyon uh, for a couple days. And uh, looking forward to just some family time away. This is not for another month or so, but looking not only to some family time away, uh, but also the warmth and the sun. And we even got tickets to a White Sox game. So uh, super excited for that. Those tickets, they've made you buy them in pods and separate you around the the park. Oh, you know, only 25% of capacity. You got to wear masks the whole time. So certainly different than what we're used to. But just to be able to go to a baseball game uh, is going to be pretty unbelievable. I, I, I can't. Uh, yeah, I'm just really excited to do that. So. Uh, hopefully you're enjoying your Monday today, and and I'm really glad that you have joined us again here on The Common Good. Well, wanted to talk about something that I saw on social media this weekend. It started with a tweet by Tim Keller. Tim Keller, a couple days ago, uh, 
he tweeted this. Uh, to understand the impact of something like critical theory or critical race theory, you must not only read lots of its theorists, but you must also know face to face, but also must know face to face and work with the political uh, and activist practitioners inspired by it. Uh, and he goes on to tweet some more there and, and uh, cards on the table. As I have told you many times before on the show, uh, I am a huge Tim Keller fan. Uh, Tim Keller, he was the pastor uh, of uh, Redeemer uh, Presbyterian Church in New York City. Uh, but beyond that, uh, he is just uh, a, a stalwart of evangelicalism. The books that he has written, everything from Reason for God to Meaning for Marriage and all other uh, books, to his speaking, to his uh, just pastoring. He is, uh, I went to a conference once where they referred to Tim Keller as Yoda. Uh, and so Tim Keller, he has since retired from the church and now writes and speaks uh, and does all sorts of other things. Uh, and so he's become very active on Twitter. And here he takes on this topic of critical race theory, which has been a huge topic politically, uh, but also in the church world. Just Google critical race theory and the Southern Baptist Convention uh, and see what has been happening around that. But Tim Keller wrote that. And then Eric Metaxas. So you're probably familiar with Eric Metaxas. Uh, he is a radio host, author, uh, very well-known commentator, political, religious commentator, uh, author of the uh, well-known book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Well, Eric Metaxas wrote a response to Tim Keller's tweet. And Metaxas wrote this. Can you imagine having the time to do this? What Keller said that you must not only read a lot about the theorists, or you must also know face to face and work with political and activist uh, practitioners inspired by it. Metaxas says, can you imagine having the time to do this? I think we can save time and simply reject it as warmed over Marxism. No. Uh, and then where I saw it was uh, Laura Chastain uh, at her Twitter account. She then answered Metaxas and wrote this. Can you imagine being a prolific author who believes reading about a topic before drawing conclusions about said topic is a waste of time? Wow. And I think this it touches on something that, that is just a, a, a real bugaboo for me and something that I think is so, so important because I think Laura Chastain is right. Look at what Metaxas says here. Look what Eric Metaxas essentially says uh, about Tim Culler's thing. He goes, who's got time for this? Who's got time to listen to the people who have read a lot about it, to the theorists, to the people who are most invested, to the professors, to the whoever else, to the people who you trust, though, uh, and who are most in it? Or maybe people on the other side. Basically, Keller's saying, hey, before, uh, you know, talking about it, learn about it, dive into it. Uh, and Metaxas says, who has time for that? And goes on to say, maybe we just call it Marxism and simply rejected as if he's just telling people, hey, I know this is Marxism or, or warmed over Marxism. Don't worry about it. And you might read all about critical race theory. Uh, I've got problems with critical race theory. You might read critical race theory and uh, and go, yeah, that's just warmed over Marxism. But but the problem isn't with where you land. It's with an author and a commentator saying, who's got time for that? Let me tell you what it is. And Laura Chastain, I think, is right. She's saying, can you imagine being a prolific author who believes reading about a topic before drawing conclusions about said topic is a waste of time? This is why this is such an important conversation. Uh, it's because uh, we do this way too 
often, where we speak about things that we don't know or understand, but where we've heard other people talk about it. We've heard people use the word Marxism about this, or we've heard people say this about this church or this about that speaker or that author. And we don't, or, or about just any topic. And we don't take the time uh, to dig in and do the research ourselves. But instead, we listen to what that cable news channel says or that social media account says or that writer says on both sides of the aisle. And we go, well, I'm going to take their opinion. And therefore, that's going to form my opinion because I, quite frankly, don't have the time to dive into topic X, Y or Z. And you wonder why we then end up with uh, echo chambers. And why we then end up with all the places we are culturally and even in the church. Here's a thought. If you don't have the time to dig into something like this, then don't talk about it. If you don't have the time or the energy or the interest to unpack, say, in this case, critical uh, race theory, if you're not going to do what Keller talks about, that's fine. But then don't pontificate about it. Allow others who have taken the time to dig in. And then when you think you have the time or you have the interest or you've done the background work, then go ahead and add your voice into it. Here's what we do way too often as a culture. We add our voice into things that we don't know about or we haven't taken the time to know about. But we think, Ian and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, we think that we're going to be an expert in everything. And pastors are terrible at this. We think we need to be experts about everything. But instead, there come times that you don't need to weigh in. And you could just go, you know what? I don't know about that topic very much. I'd like to learn more. I'm going to take some time to learn more. Uh, and then I'm going to form an opinion on it. And I'm going to form what I think. But instead, we live in a social media world of 140 characters, of quick posts, of hot takes. And we think we have to weigh in on everything. And that doesn't help. And so, friends, here's what I want to suggest, and I'm going to suggest it to myself. I even have a radio show, and I need to hear myself say, you don't need to weigh in on everything. You don't need to pretend that you understand everything. What are the areas that you, quote unquote, have expertise in or that you have passion for? Weigh in on those, dig into those. Or if you want to understand more, I would suggest doing what Keller says here. Dive in, talk to people, read, meet with people, have conversations, help that form your opinion instead of just Eric Metaxas throwing out a tweet going, hey, let me save you all the time. It's warmed over Marxism. Reject it. Again, you might come to that point at the end, but that is not helpful. And so again, let's be people who do the work or just keep our mouths closed or who say, hey, I don't really know much about it. It kind of scares me. Could somebody point me in a direction about any topic, not just critical race theory, but any topic. But instead, we live in a culture that says, I'm going to hot take and weigh in on everything. And I think that's one of the reasons where we are, why we are where we are currently. Just my thoughts. Love to know what you think about it. We'll put it up on our Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, coming up next, we're going to read an article from David French and then be joined by another author, Jen Pollock Michelle. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to tackle the newest blog post from David French, and then we're joined for two segments by author Jen Pollock Michelle. You're listening to The Common Good.
Happy Monday and welcome back to The Common Good, everybody. My name is Brian Fromm, and you are listening again to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. I hope you're enjoying what has turned out to be a sunny Monday afternoon. I know it's still cold out there, but not as cold as it's been, and the snow will start melting. And we're going to go, hopefully, on the long march towards spring here. I want to talk to you about uh, a blog post I saw from David French. You might remember all this time that Ian and I did the show together. One of the people that we regularly highlighted and talked about was David French. David French uh, is a uh, political commentator. And uh, beyond that, uh, he writes about faith and he writes about other things at the French press. That's his blog. And David French has become a bit of a lightning rod. David French, uh, he is a Republican, but no fan of Donald Trump. And so again, that kind of posture, that kind of, especially when you're from Tennessee, that kind of middle ground uh, can rub people the wrong way sometimes. And David French has been a lightning rod for that. I was listening. Uh, somehow I came across a couple of weeks ago, just a talk radio program uh, that I didn't know what it was, but it turned out to be a pretty pro-Trump, far right, farther right uh, political show. And man, they were ripping apart David French. And I was like, oh, man, OK, now I have a sense for how some people think of David French cards on the table again. I so appreciate David French. He's been on the show before, uh, but I so appreciate David French because I too kind of resonate with where he lands on the political spectrum, uh, where he lands on how the church uh, should and how Christians should be interacting with politics right now. I, I tend to resonate with a lot of what he says. And so he tends to write long blog posts and we think it's valuable. We have thought over the year here is that it's valuable just to read it. Uh, and so I want to tackle one that he just released earlier uh, at the end of last week. And it's entitled this Rush Limbaugh and the Right's Generational Despair when ideology is mal- is malleable and confrontation is mandatory. Let me just get into a little bit of this. Uh, he wrote this following the death last week uh, of Rush Limbaugh. Uh, David French writes, if you're reading this and you're younger than I am, I was born in 1969, he writes, and came of age politically during the Reagan era. It's almost impossible to conceive of the pre-Rush Limbaugh media environment. It was as if we lived on a different planet. You read your morning paper, you watched the evening news, and if you were really a political hobbyist, you subscribed to the to- to Time, Newsweek, or both. The smallest micro slice of Americans was exposed to the intellectual journals like National Review or the New Republic. Uh, French writes, my exposure to conservative commentary was the library's copy of National Review combined with a few syndicated conservative columnists. In those days, George Will was a lifeline. Now, Rush Limbaugh, though, blew up this world. He nuked it from orbit. It wasn't just that his show was popular. It was phenomenally popular, he writes. He created an industry, and that industry created a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle we see now where a person comes home from work, turns on Fox News, and doesn't turn it off until they sleep, or where a person never flips the dial from their favorite talk radio station or rolls from podcast to podcast, all while the phone is in their hand scrolling through Facebook and Twitter. Is there a Roger Ailes in Fox News without Rush? Perhaps. Is it the same? Absolutely not, he writes. But many of the obituaries and analysis of Russia's undeniable impact miss uh, that he didn't just lead and shape a generation of political commentary. He also, in many ways, reflected and followed his own audience. He says, I experienced Rush in two distinct snapshots. He says first was in the 1990s where you had to hear him uh, and how he was. Uh, He said, then I came back and listened to Rush uh, around the time. 
of Donald Trump. He says, I, I largely stopped listening to Rush when I went to law school. Uh, to the extent that I still followed Rush, he frustrated me, French writes. I'm not going to catalog all his controversies, but I felt that something was changing. He seemed to be losing the happy aspect of the happy warrior. And then he catalogs 2016, how Trump came to power. Rush was kind of in between about him, but then kind of got all in on President Trump. Uh, David French goes on to say, my friend Rod Dreher uh, has written about the right and left's inverse generational problem on the left. There's a rise in grassroots demands for censorship and cancel culture coming often from students and young employees that was deeply influenced a number, uh, deeply influenced a number of leading center left cultural institutions. On the right, however, the intolerance and anger tends to come from older voters, from Russia's generation, from my parents' generation, French rights. As the 2020 election approached, there was a palpable sense of panic that America itself was at stake. Yes, there are the young Charlie Kirk style firebrands, but the audience and energy for Trump was much older. And many of them attacked dissenters with every bit as much of energy as the most enraged campus progressive. French goes on to say, I don't put all or most of this in Russia's lap. He broke American media. He broke open American media, but soon enough, he was but one admittedly important voice of many. He was both an architect and product of his political generation. And like so many millions of his fellow citizens, he lost his political way, French says. And at the end, he goes this. He says, America is prosperous. Uh, America is more prosperous than it was when, when Rush launched his career. It's more free. Crime is down from its highs. Abortion is down. Divorce is down. Protections for individual liberty are more robust than they've been in decades. But tribalism is worse. Polarization is more profound. In such circumstance, the ideas that helped improve our republic have taken a backseat to the attitudes that help us confront uh, our opponents. The ideology is malleable. The confrontation is mandatory. That's the migration Rush made. That's the migration millions made. Rush was a symbol of a generation's despair. That's a David French. And I know that was kind of long, but I thought it was super important. That line, uh, we're more prosperous. Uh, we're more free. Crime is down, but well, but tribalism and polarization is worse and more profound. And if you've listened to the show, you know how I feel about this. We as the Christ followers, we as the church, we as the people who follow Jesus, we need to be more bridge than we need to be divider. Okay, we need to fight this tribalism within our churches around political things and also culturally. We need to show something different. And I think it's fascinating that French says that Rush wasn't like this in the beginning, but he kind of became this. And we see this in a lot of our friends or family or other people in our lives that that politics has taken on a more um, foundational uh, importance right now than it used to. And the question for the church, I think, in the coming decade or so is going to be, are we going to change? Are we going to look different? Are we going to uh, fight against this polarization and this tribalism around politics? Or are we going to continue, as most people think we are now, continue to just kind of run in that stream? And in fact, be more defined by our politics. Politics is good. We should be a part of it, but it should not define us. Uh, it should not be what is ultimate in our lives. I'm not a uh, a Republican first or a Democrat first. I'm a Christ follower first, and I take up his call. So I think this this idea from David French is so important. Ideology is malleable right now in our culture. Confrontation is mandatory. That tribalism is worse and polarization is profound. The question is, are we as Christians okay with that? 
Are we going to remain okay with that in our churches? Because that's the way our, our culture is going. Are we going to remain okay with that? Are we going to fight? Are we going to uh, change the tides, at least within our own families, within our own churches and other places? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to give this article or read this blog post. It's really good. We've got it up on our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, Jen Pollock, Michelle, author of the new book, A Habit Called Faith, 40 Days in the Bible to Find and Follow Jesus. Jen is coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hope you're having a great Monday. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to be having you with us today. Uh, and we are thrilled to be joined for the next two segments uh, by author Jen Pollock-Michelle. Jen, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. It's absolutely our pleasure. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience just so they can get to know you a little bit? I'm an American writer living in Toronto. We moved here in 2011 for my husband's work opportunity. We have five kids mm. and I've released now four books and um, graduated from Wheaton College, grew up kind of all around the Midwest and Southern United States and never imagined that I'd actually we'd make our home in Canada but we have just loved our new city and our new church and our neighborhood. And we're super happy to be here. Yeah. That's a, a people who listen to the show know that I'm a Wheaton grad and, and you and I made some strange connections. Like, Oh, we actually know some of the same people. It's kind of, it is kind <laughs> of fun that way. And you have a, a book coming out, I believe called habit called a habit called faith 40 days in the Bible to find and follow Jesus. Could you talk to us right off the bat here? That, that idea of habit, your new, your new book is centered around habits. So explain for our audience the concept of habit and why it's so important to this, our, our desire to strengthen our faith. Habit is so formative in our lives. I mean, we're formed by the things that we repetitively do, whether we know it or not. Um, and I feel like I've noticed that even in the pandemic, you know, there are habits that have sort of sustained me and grounded me, especially spiritual habits. And then there are terrible habits that I formed too. And I think a lot of us can sort of relate to that. Um, but you know, this is the, uh, the book is just based on this idea that habit is powerful. Um, and habit is a really practical way to think about our faith lives. A lot of times we think, about faith is sort of being built by epiphanies, mm. you know, the mountaintop experiences, Moses and um, just Elijah and all of these sort of extraordinary moments. And really, I think faith is built in the everyday and it's built very incrementally just by ordinary practices that are both individual and communal and private and public. Yeah. Um, and I think that's I think that's practical for people. It's this idea. It's a way into faith to think about how they can build their faith and, and they don't have to rely on some sort of magic for it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as somebody who has started many a New Year's resolution and failed at them by this time of year already, <laughs> uh, what is it that makes habits so difficult? It, what is it that makes them hard for uh, hard to stick, I should say, when we think about forming new habits in our lives? A lot of times I think we just attempt the impossible. Mm. You know, when you think about like exercise and New Year's revol resolutions, often it's, I'm going to run, you know, 30 minutes a day instead of starting out by walking 10. Mm -hmm. um, and so sometimes it's just attempting the impossible. And when we try to do that, we can't sustain it. And so we just give up. So we don't, we need really realistic goals. We need small goals and we need actually an appreciation for the power of just doing something small and doing it consistently. 
I think we're really seduced sometimes by thinking that change is going to happen by just the really big cosmic gestures. And again, faith and other parts of our lives, they're really built on small, ordinary things that we just do day in and day out. And so maybe if we can grab a hold of that, um, we can sort of lower our expectations for habits. And Mm -hmm. we can also be a little bit more patient because habit means that you have to wait for the reward. You don't see it in a week or a month. You know, a lot of times we see the rewards um, for good habits in years. You know, we measure them in years. Yeah. Yeah. And this, uh, the idea of the book, which I said is coming out, has already come out. So congratulations on that. It came out on February the 16th, uh, a habit called Faith 40 Days in the Bible to Find and Follow Jesus. Uh, the idea of Bible reading, right? We've all started Bible reading plans uh, and then kind of fallen off. Again, kind of what you're describing. We take on too much, like I'm going to read it every day for a year. And then, you know, by Leviticus, we're done or Exodus. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, could you just paint a picture? Maybe there's people out there who've never really tried to read the Bible. Uh, what is the benefit of regular forming a habit of regular Bible reading? What What is as opposed to it being like our Christian homework that we have to do? What's the benefit of regular time in the word? The benefit really is, is that the Bible is the means of God speaking to us. Mm. One means. I don't think it's the only means, but I do think it's a primary means. And I think a lot of times people sort of wonder, why does my faith feel so fragile? Why does my faith life just feel oh, I don't know, sort of maybe empty or hollow. And it's sort of like asking, why is that friendship not strong when I never call my friend, (laughs) you know, when we actually never talk? And so it's just our relationship with God is like our relationship with everybody else with our, well, not exactly like it, Mm -hmm. but alike, alike in the way that it requires conversation. And Bible is one, the Bible is one half of that conversation. And I think it inspires actually the second half of that conversation, which is prayer, Mm -hmm. which is the way that we respond to God. And so entering into the landscape of the Bible can sometimes be hard because it's so foreign to us, especially if you get into an Old Testament book like I did for this book, Deuteronomy. (laughs) And so sometimes sometimes we just need some aids. We need some resources. We need some guides and some companions so that we don't get lost along the way. Yeah. Yeah. What's uh, what's your habit? Help people understand for for, you know, for Jen, what what is Bible reading and prayer look like for you? Yeah, I actually read the one year Bible. I've been doing that for years and years and years and years. Um, I did it actually in college and then I, I step, I've stepped away from sure. it for certain years, too, especially when I had really young children. And I, I definitely didn't have necessarily the time or the quiet to, to do that much Bible reading. So I sort of shrunk what I read during those years. But now I'm, I'm just kind of an early riser. I don't think there's anything super holy about getting up early. I don't think you have to do your Bible reading in the morning. Um, but there is a time that I carve out every day to read the word and just, and I allow myself to sort of trip over the things that puzzle me, mm-hmm. that surprise me. Um, I try to give myself enough time where I can can actually linger with some things. And I think that one really important way to read the Bible is to let the Bible read us too. And that's often what's happening to me as I open the pages of scripture. I'm, I'm letting God sort of reveal not only himself to me, but myself to myself. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's good. Uh, Jen has written many other books. We're going to talk about one of them in the next segment called Surprised by Paradox, a, a book, a concept that I just find fascinating and really helpful for us to talk about. Let me ask you a really strange question. I'm looking at your bio. You and I, as we said, we both went to Wheaton and you got your, uh, you majored in French. I didn't know many people at Wheaton who majored in <laughs> French. When you majored in French, like what was the goal? Like what were you shooting for? I will tell you before you answer that, my mom was a French teacher my whole life growing up. Uh, oh, but, fun. But you got your BA, uh, your bachelor's in French. Uh, and again, I didn't know anyone at Wheaton who did that. So what was the goal as you were like, yeah, you know what? That's going to be my major. I wish I could say that, you know, I had some really wonderful long-term plan that yeah. was super clear. I mean, at that point, I really just wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a high school teacher. Okay. And French was kind of the subject that I liked the best. I love I love language, truthfully, because I think it is when you think of a foreign language, it's not just the language that you study, but it's the culture, it's the history, it's the literature. And so in some ways, it's very interdisciplinary. And that was kind of intriguing for me. I do laugh, though, because I had a lot of ministry desires when I went to Wheaton, but I never really thought about doing, I don't know, any sort of ministry degree. I guess I just wasn't sure exactly what I would do with that. Yes. So I ended up, yeah, doing French. That's awesome. That's good. Well, again, Jen Pollock michelle is joining us. She's the author of a new book just out last week called A Habit Called Faith, 40 Days in the Bible to Find and Follow Jesus. You can get that wherever it is you get your books, uh, Amazon or other places. Uh, but Jen, you also wrote another book called Surprised by Paradox. And as I was reading about it, I found it just fascinating. Uh, it, it's such an important concept. And so let me start with this question. Uh, well, why don't you just tell us what the book is about? And then we'll dive into it. When you say surprised by paradox, what is the kind of overall thought process of this book? Yeah, I think the subtitle can be helpful to just sort of situate it a little bit. The promise of and in an either or world. Mm. So it really is this idea of where we're drawn to holding truths in tension, where two things seem contradictory. And we have to say that both are true at the very same time. I will say that I went into the book thinking that I was going to write a book on mystery. Oh. The things that were less, the things that were sort of opaque or that we couldn't really understand ways um, that, I don't know, different themes and ideas in Christian faith, like lament. That's actually where I started. And I started writing with lament. It actually happens to be the last section of the book. But it's this idea that how do we hold intention, grief and hope at the very same time, and maybe anger with God and faith in God at the very same time. And this is modeled for us in the Psalms. Mm -hmm. And when I turned in that section, my editor said, this isn't about mystery. This is about paradox. This is about the both and. And I said, really? Mm. I didn't, I didn't even really think about that. Truthfully, it wasn't that I had, you know, this burning curiosity about paradox, but what I did have a curiosity to write about was just this idea of, when you live the life of faith, you don't always end up with um, systematic, tidy answers mm -hmm. for everything. Sometimes you end up with a lot of dissonance, and that can be a discomforting kind of place to be in. Yeah, yeah. And that's where I wanted to talk about uh, so many of us who have been in the church for a long time. Uh, maybe grew up in the church, we feel like there should always be certainty, right? Everything is mm -hmm. black and white. There should always be these definitive answers and that when we don't have certainty, we're the problem. Uh, yes. and, and that's it. Uh, so can you talk a little bit more about the danger when we think certainty is always kind of the end goal of our faith? I think the danger is a lot of pride, yeah. truthfully. And I'm not the only one to say that. Um, Hans Boersma is one of the 
books that I quote, his book, I actually can't remember the name of it right now, but, you know, he was just talking about how modern theology is really characterized by a lot of pride, a lot of arrogance, a a sense of like, well, we know everything and we have all the mysteries sort of figured out. And that really doesn't actually make sense of scripture because scripture tells us that God reveals himself, but God also hides. Mm. And there are, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So it would seem obvious that there are things that are out of reach of our own understanding. I just don't think we like to situate ourselves there because it leaves us feeling again, a little bit out of control. If I don't, if I don't have answers, then how am I going to know how to do X or how am I going to know how to confront Y or how's our church going to decide on this particular question? And I think one of the drives for that kind of certainty and certainty is not a bad thing. We do have certainty about something. Sure. Um, but one of the things that that could sort of impede is just a posture of listening, a posture of humility. And so I, I take um, the, as a controlling image, the story of Moses at the burning bush, because he really confronts a paradox. It's a bush that burns and is not consumed. Mm. So how is he to make sense of these two things that don't seem to make sense of each other? And what does he do? It's the place for meeting God. It's the place for removing his shoes. And it's actually a place also to be sent into the world. And I think if we could imagine Christians being sent into the world, not with just ironclad certainty about everything, but just a posture of humility, um, a posture of the being the kinds of people who are surrendered to the words and will of God, even when those don't always make sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So as we think about paradox or we think about mystery being part of our faith uh, and kind of embracing that, um, how do we, this is the $64,000 question, right? How do we grow in that? <laughs> how do we break kind of the chain of always feeling like I need certainty with everything? Like you said, there are, there are certainly things that we're certain about and have certainty about, uh, but not all things in scripture. So how do we grow uh, in having a faith that is okay with paradox, is okay with mystery? One of the ways I think is related even to what we were talking about in the previous segment is just the practice of how we read scripture. How do we read scripture? Do we always go to scripture to confirm the things that we think we already know? I think that's a real temptation that I'm going to just open the pages of scripture and it's going to confirm everything that I already know to be true. Um, I, my experience of reading scripture is often I open it and um, I puzzle over things. Things surprise me. There are a lot of things that kind of confound me. And I think one of the ways we grow in our capacity for paradox is actually to just find it in scripture and to notice it. And then not just to notice the paradox, but to notice our own reaction to it. Um, Why do I feel so disoriented by something here that doesn't fit my easy, neat categories? I mean, Job, a book like Job is exactly that kind of book, because if you read the book of Job, you realize he doesn't get any answers for the suffering that he's experienced. The only answer that he really gets is that, Job, you're a creature and I'm the creator. And there's not really a sense of, you know, the why is sort of left hanging. But Job, again, has an encounter with God, a sense of maybe the questions matter less than I thought that they did. Mm. And so... I do think that the practice of Bible reading, sort of rethinking how we do that and noticing our reactions, noticing how we want to confirm things that we think are true, how we're disoriented when we stumble over something that doesn't fit those neat categories. But 
The good news is, is that that can bring us into worship. I really do think Hmm. so, that when we discover that God is just so much higher than our own thoughts about him, um, that in his infinite sort of, he has infinite capacity to embrace things that don't seem true at the very, don't seem that they could hold true at the very same time. I mean, the fact that Jesus himself is fully human and fully God. That's not a paradox to resolve. Right. It's something simply to absorb and welcome. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Uh, Jen, quickly, uh, your book, the new one out, is called A Habit Called Faith, 40 Days in the Bible to Find and Follow Jesus. Somebody out there going, I don't even know where to start. I don't know how to even begin reading the Bible. What's step one? What would you share with someone out there? What's step one to beginning a habit specifically of reading scripture? I would say get a plan, get a plan, get a resource to help you. And there are so many things. I actually was just struck today of another book that I was reading that said Christians will more likely maintain the habit of regular Bible reading if they do it digitally, which kind of affronts everything that we sort of think. But it's that idea that, you know, there are a lot of tricks to, you know, be being held accountable, I guess, to a goal for regular Bible reading. There's so many plans actually on version and Bible Gateway. It's not hard to find a plan, right. but you need a plan because it's just a little bit of structure. It's, it's sort of like the anchor to tether you when you feel like you could just sort of fly in the wind. Mm-hmm. Get, get, get some structure. That's really good. Again, the new book is called A Habit Called Faith, 40 Days in the Bible to Find and Follow Jesus. Uh, Jen Pollock michelle is the author. Before we let you go, where can people find you? Social media, online, all sorts of different places. Where can people find uh, what you've written or social media or whatever else it might be? Yeah, if you can spell my name, you can find my website, jenpollockmichelle.com. And I am most active on Twitter at Jen P. Michelle and Instagram at Jen P. Michelle. You can find me on Facebook a little bit less frequently at Jen P. Michelle as well. <laughs> well, Jen, thanks so much. It's always good to have another Wheaton grad on the show. Uh, but also beyond that, we're really blessed by the books you've written and the conversation we've had. So, Jen, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thankful for you joining us today on this sunny Monday afternoon. Well, something we've been trying to do uh, on this show, especially during this time of COVID is try to end every show either with an encouragement, try to end the show uh, with uh, an inspiration or just something to leave us thinking. And one of the great spots in our culture, if you really want to kind of look for inspiration and challenge is to look at people's uh, to look at uh, past graduation commencement speakers. Man, you could get into a real deep dive on YouTube and just go, go to YouTube and type in, uh, graduation commencement speeches and see what comes up. And you will start to see that, that these are usually unbelievably challenging or inspiring because that's what they're doing. They're, they're looking at the graduates and they're saying, uh, as I send you out, as I send you out into the world, now that college is over, uh, think about these things or consider this. And a lot of times it's really lofty and it's up there. Uh, and that's what struck me. I saw on Twitter, and this is old, this isn't new, uh, but I believe general, I believe Bill McRaven, uh, he uh, was speaking 
and and I want you just to hear this is like I don't know 50 seconds. So obviously there's a lot more to this, but this is like 50 seconds. Let's listen to what uh, Bill McRaven had to say. You want to change the world? Start off by making your bed. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride and it will encourage you to do another task and another and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made. That you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. So I just love that. If you want to change the world, and probably people were leaning forward when he said, if you want to change the world, what must he be about to tell us? Like, get out the notebook. I'm ready for it. Like, this is the part of the sermon, right? When you're in church, like, all right, the pastor says, write this down. Like, okay, this general, this highly accomplished man is going to tell us uh, if you want to change the world. That's what we want to do as college students, right? Send us out to change the world. And he says, if you want to change the world, start by making your bed. And you could hear laughter in the audience. People going, uh, excuse me, my bed. And he goes, yes, yeah, start by making your bed, because then you will have accomplished the first task of the day. Uh, it's going to give you this small sense of pride and encourage you to keep going to another and another and another. I just love that imagery. He says, start by making your bed and then you will have accomplished something in your day. And then go accomplish another thing and the next thing and the next thing. And that these small accomplishments uh, are going to go and kind of add up. And then you're going to get to the end of your day and you're going to look back and go, I have many tasks completed. And then he says, or if you complete nothing, at least to the end of you get to the end of your day and your bed is made. You've completed that one thing. I think there is such simplistic wisdom in this. This is awesome. That You know what? Make your bed. The imagery there being. It's the small things that matter. Accomplish that one small thing and then go back. So why are we talking about this? Because, A, I think it's, it's good wisdom. I think it's important. But here's what we do wrong in the church sometimes. If you'll let me move this to what we do often in the church. What we do often in the church is we, we and I, I'm guilty of this. I'm a pastor. I'm guilty of this. We get up and we say, in Christ, you can change the world. Follow God and, and he'll use you to do extraordinary things. And those are true, right? We read the book of Acts. We, we see these throughout church history. God does use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. But here's the catch. W when we don't see life-changing, uh, world-changing things happen to us, we're like, did I fail? Am I not good enough for God to use me? And, and these start these things start to come. And I think we set people up for failure when we get up behind pulpits and be, God has called everybody to change the world. I think what's more helpful is God has called you to change your world, to bring hope to your world, to bring love to your world, to bring grace to your world, to bring the gospel to your world. And your world might end up being the whole world or it might be your neighborhood. And so I think what becomes more helpful is for us to begin saying things like, make your bed. Uh, instead of go change the world, because here let's do it in a church in 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 uh 
you know, kind of this church realm. What if instead of telling people God called you to go change the world and, and putting almost that pressure on them, we think of it as like expectation, but it's really, you could start to feel that pressure. What if instead we started saying things like, hey, God called you to love your neighbor. Tomorrow, do one thing to love your neighbor. And then the next day, do another thing, accomplish another thing to love your neighbor. And then a third thing to love your neighbor. God has called you to sacrificially love your spouse or to love your children. Like do one thing, do what's one thing you can do today to sacrificially love your spouse or to love your kids and show them the love of Christ. What's your neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. What's one thing you can do for your neighbor? What is one way you can bless the people of your church? And it becomes not the huge thing, but it becomes the accumulation of these small things these accomplishments of these small things that then we look back over time and we're like, man, God used me in the life of my neighbor in a powerful way. Well, how did he use you? Because you kept loving your neighbor and loving your neighbor and showing Jesus to your neighbor and showing Jesus to your neighbor. I think of the blessed practices we talked to Dave and John Ferguson about about a month ago or your kids or your your church or your your job or your school, whatever else it might be. I think if we stopped using the language of every Christian is called to change the world, we're all meant to be Billy Graham on some level, but instead said we're meant to be present and sent into our worlds to show and speak the good news and love and grace of the gospel. God is going to change our worlds. And as God changes my world and he changes your world and your world, you know, it gets changed the entire world. A movement begins. And so I wanted to end with that. Don't feel the pressure of go change the world. God can use you to do extraordinary things. He absolutely can. But let's start with what do we know we've been called to do? We know we've been called to love our neighbor. So friends, what's one thing you can do to love your neighbor today? What's one thing you can do to love your family, your church, uh, to serve others? What are those things to pray for people? And let's keep accomplishing the small things that we know we've been called to and see what God does with that faithfulness. To put it in his McRaven's words, let's make our beds. Let's start by making our beds and see what happens as we continue to faithfully go through our day. We'll be back tomorrow. We got a new guest host tomorrow uh, and and for Wednesday. Uh, But we hope you have a great night. We're glad you spent some time with us. We hope that you have a great night. My name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.